0: Chris Tarrant uh, and his famous uh, game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? But also at the same time as he did Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, he also he also was a presenter on Capital Radio, and on Capital Radio he also uh, presented this. He did this different game where people could phone in, and Chris Tarrant would give them a subject. And he would give them a letter of the alphabet. And then the aim for this person was that they had to say four things, uh, beginning with that letter, about the subject that he said. So let me give you an example. Uh, let's try it. Okay. Um, the Christian names of the staff at HTC. Uh, the letter J. So you've got to give four J's uh, of Christian names of staff teams. Let's hear it. Jago, thank you. Josh, yes. James. John, thank you very much, and Jess, you've got, there are five, they're very good, Uh, let's try it again, Uh, books of the Bible, E, Uh, hang on, wait, you're not putting your hand up like you should do in class, Um, Ezekiel and Ezra, I've heard so far, Ecclesiastes, Ephesians, brilliant, there's Exodus, and there's one more I can't remember, Um, perfect, very good, so, uh, one day, um, somebody phoned in. And after the new sort of banal, the sort of usual banal banter that you get on radio shows, um, uh, Chris Tarrant said to the lady, he said, your subject for today is the workplace. At which point, this lady uttered in a sort of rather downhearted voice. She just went, oh, God. And uh, Chris Tarrant replied. And he said, no, you won't find God in the workplace. You won't find God in the workplace. And that's so often how it feels, isn't it? Uh, in our world as a whole maybe in our workplaces particularly, we won't find God. God, it seems there's no room for him. And it was a very similar situation for Daniel and his friends in Daniel chapter 1. Let me just read those first two verses again. They set the scene for the whole book of Daniel. Just have a look at the first two verses, that first little paragraph. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So it seems like there is no room for the God of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon. He has come to Jerusalem. at 605 BC, and he has come to Jerusalem, and he has flattened Jerusalem, and he's taken many of its inhabitants back to Babylon. And in those days, to conquer a country was to conquer its gods. It's a huge attack from Nebuchadnezzar. He's saying, your God, he doesn't exist. And he says, the central bits of God's temple in Jerusalem, they're now sitting as sort of frilly little ornaments in my temple to my God. And this is the backdrop to the whole book of Daniel. Who is really in control? Who's in control? Is it human kings like Nebuchadnezzar? or is it the king of heaven? Who is really in control? Because it looks like God is defeated. It looks like God is a complete waste of space. Who's in control? It's a question they'd have been asking back then, It's a question probably many of us, many people in this country are asking at the moment. Who is really in control? Both Christians are asking it and those who aren't Christians. Who's in control? Politically, things seem a bit of a mess. Confusion with Brexit, a a slim majority by linking up with the DUP. Tim Farron resigning because apparently his faith can't fit in with being leader of the Lib Dems. Then tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, Grenfell Tower fire and terrorist attacks. Who on earth is in control? I'm sure you've asked it. I have. Who's in control? And so Daniel and his friends, just like us, we have to assess how should we relate to people around us. For Daniel, how should he relate to these Babylonians who had no time for God at all when things seem out of God's control? How was Daniel and his friends going to relate to other people? One way would be to be a hedgehog. So they could have sort of curled themselves up in a, in a little ball like a hedgehog, aghast at the godless words and actions that were coming from others in Babylon. They could have gone into their own sort of little, uh, little bubble. We could go into our own little Christian bubbles and just sort of do our spikes sticking out, defending us from these non-Christian barbarians. That's not what Daniel does. Not withdrawing like a hedgehog in a little bubble. So that's one option, be a hedgehog. Second way to relate to those around us, for Daniel and for us, is not to be a hedgehog, but it's to be a chameleon. To be a chameleon. You know how chameleons, how they change their color to merge into the background? Uh, And we, too, could do that. Apparently, I'm not sure if it's true. You may have heard that if you put a chameleon on a tartan cloth, apparently it explodes. I don't know if that's true or not, Um, but uh, there we go. But um, we who are Christians could be chameleons. We could merge into the prevailing culture of wherever we are. So when we're at work, just merge to the prevailing work culture. When we're here at church, merge to the prevailing church culture. When we're at home, merge to the culture of our workplace, of our home home life and our street. Just merge who we are depending on where we are. Never offend anyone. So everyone's happy. But it's interesting, when it comes to Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, They choose neither to be a hedgehog nor to be a chameleon. They don't withdraw and go into some sort of commune by themselves in the Babylonian desert, but nor do they just blend in like that chameleon. Rather, Daniel and his friends, they dare to be distinct. They dare to be distinct. If you want a creature, uh, they're not a hedgehog. That They're not a chameleon. They're a, I don't know, a salmon or a trout. They're a fish. They are swimming against the flow. It's only dead fish that go with the flow. They are willing to swim against the flow. Just look at verse 8, would you? Verse 8. It says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. And the question you're probably asking is, why does Daniel make such an issue about the food and drink? After all, Daniel has just had his name changed to Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar is named after Bel, the Babylonian god, and he doesn't kick, a, kick up a fuss about that. Uh, after all, they've been, uh, he's been made to um, learn Babylonian omens and incantations. He's in this whole sort of re, reprogramming of his mind by the Babylonians, and he doesn't kick up a fuss about that but then suddenly he has to eat this meat and this drink from the king's table, and he does kick up a fuss. Why? Short answer is no one's totally sure. No one's totally sure. I mean, possibly it's because the food and drink was seen as unclean under Jewish regulations. could be that. But nonetheless, it's not so much that Daniel needed to be clever enough to know what to take a stand on. Rather, Daniel needed to be brave enough to take a stand at all. And if you're filling in those points, that's the first thing that we need to be. If we're going to be distinct, we need to be brave. It'll be different situations for different people in different places, but our commitment to our Lord God has to come before our commitment to fit in with those around us, and that takes guts. We're going to need to be brave Second thing we need to be not just brave, but we need to be considerate because Daniel He's a great example here because he he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to eat the food and drink, but he doesn't make unreasonable demands. Rather, verse 8, he asked the chief official for permission. He knew this chief official was going to be accountable if Daniel ended up looking unhealthy. So he suggests this sort of suitable, alternative, pragmatic course of action, a a 10-day trial period, if you like. Try it for 10 days on the vegetables, see what we look like, and lo and behold, what happens? They look brilliant. You see, being distinct... It does mean you and me being brave, but it doesn't mean you and me being arrogant or awkward or unreasonable. So be brave, first of all. Be considerate, second. And then third, be early. Be early. And by that, I mean Daniel and his friends. In Daniel chapter 1, they are young men. They're 18 or 20. They're really young. They're sort of university-type age. But they are going to have a lifetime of this challenge of daring to be distinct. And while this issue of the food and drink, while it might seem rather small and insignificant, later in life there's going to be the fiery furnace. We're going to look at that next week. And later in life still, there's going to be the lion's den, when Daniel's an old man. And what we see here is that with Daniel being distinct in the small things early on in life, is the background for being distinct in the big situations when they arise. Some of you may have heard me say this, but I'll never forget when I was um, in the summer between university and starting as a job as a management consultant. So it was actually 20 years ago, about now, July 20 years ago. And um, a friend and I, we went on this Christian holiday for people of all ages but we were in the sort of 18 to 30 section of the holiday. But one afternoon, we decided to go to the seminar for the people over 30, and it was about being Christians in the workplace. And it was, as I say, 20 years ago, this seminar, and I can remember that seminar vividly. And I can remember it vividly, even though it was 20 years ago, because it was one of the most depressing things that I've ever been to in my life. It was appalling. And the reason it was so appalling was because there were lots of people in there, mainly men, mainly in their 40s and 50s, And basically, these were men that I looked up to as godly um, people that I respected, that I wanted to be like. And I heard them all saying how they could be full-on for Jesus on a Sunday at church, but how they could just discard him in their workplace during the week. And it shocked me. It was so depressing. And if you like, I sort of vowed as best I could uh, then that I didn't want to end up like those men. And that's part of why, as some of you will know, what sort of my journey in the last 20 years has been with a particular passion of helping people connect their faith uh, to their day-to-day work. Because I didn't want to see people ending up like these people at this seminar. You see, these people, they, they didn't mean to, but they hadn't been distinct early on in their working lives in the small things. And as a result, over the years, they had just drifted and drifted and drifted. So they were no different from their colleagues who didn't know Jesus Christ. And if you like, I compare that to a friend of mine who I recently chatted to, uh, and he recently changed job. And he deliberately decided in his interview, uh, without being prompted, to just tell them, he said, I'm a Christian, and I'm not up for sailing close to the wind morally. He told them that he was not worth employing if that was going to be part of his work. And so it's just an encouragement to each one of us in wherever it is, whatever that new situation we might go into, whether it's work, whether it's a new group of friends, a new sports team, new school that our children go to, whatever it might be, to be early in being distinct as a Christian. Um, I love um, surfing for our holidays in um, a, few months, a few weeks' time. We're going down to Cornwall and we'll, we'll surf. And when I say surf, I mean boogie board. Um, I, mean, uh, I mean wetsuit on lying on a boogie board, no standing up, that's far too complicated, just lying, floating like a beach whale on my board, okay? Um, Susanna... Uh, When we were dating, how many years ago it was, uh, 16, 17 years ago, when I told her that I like surfing, she's Australian, she assumed I meant stand-up surfing. It's the only reason she agreed to go on a date with me. Uh, And it was too late by the time I told her that I couldn't actually stand up on a board at all, but there we go. Um, But but when when I'm out surfing, I'm, I'm waiting for the wave, I'm on my boogie board, I'm out in the sea, waiting for that big wave, and you can just lie on your board for ages. And you just drift and drift and drift and drift until you get off the board and you plant your feet on the sand and you actually stay in one place. And that is the same for each one of us. We can just drift and drift and drift and drift unless we plant our feet on the sand and say, I am going to be distinct for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to mean being brave. It's going to be mean, mean being considerate. And it's going to mean being early. But we need to plant our feet and say, this is what it means for me to be distinct like that salmon, not like the chameleon, not like the hedgehog. Now, I've spoken there a little bit about how to be distinct, and uh, what I want to finish with, though, is why. It's all very well saying, be distinct, but why? Why should we be different from those around us? Why should we stand out from the crowd, particularly if it might mean, as Christians, being marginalized, being ridiculed, in some countries being persecuted for one's faith? Why should we be distinct? And the answer is very simple. It's two words. Two words, and the two words are God gives. God gives. Just look as we close at verse 17. Verse 17 at the bottom, it says, To these four young men God gave knowledge and understanding. Uh, and those two words, God gave there, they have actually come They come three times in this chapter, in Daniel chapter 1. They come three times, but only once are they translated, God gave. Let me show you the other two times that they come. Look right back to the first two I re- read earlier. It says, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. That's literally, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. So you see, God was behind his people being sent into exile in Babylon in the first place. Who's in control, we asked at the start? God is. God gave. God is not defeated. God is not a waste of space. He is pulling all the strings. Look down to verse 9. It says, Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. Literally, that is, Now God gave to the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. God was behind ensuring that Daniel's decision to be distinct would go okay. And then in verse 17, as we've already seen, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding. God is the one providing for all his people, giving them all that they need. So why should you be distinct as a Christian, even if it may mean being marginalized. Why be distinct? Because God gives. God gives. And we know today what Daniel did not know. We know that the greatest gift of all that God has given us is the gift of his son given up to death on a cross. And if you are here today. And you're not yet a Christian. It would be great if you could hold on to this in your investigation of Christianity. Christianity is not about loads of rules, Christianity is about a relationship. It is about a relationship with a God who gives, a God who has given to you his very own son, and he has given him unto death on a cross so that you can have a relationship with God. God gives. You will never want to become a Christian until you realize quite how much the Lord Almighty has given to you. And for those of us here, the majority, we have come to God in the past. We would call ourselves a Christian, including those who are getting baptized or reaffirming their vows today. For us for us, knowing, rejoicing in all that God has given us. For us, the challenge is to say, because, God has get all, because of all that God has given us supremely in Jesus, because of that, we are prepared in response to be distinct for Jesus. And to be distinct in all of our lives because of what God has first given us.